warning, the following podcast may cause severe side effects, including but not limited to severe spoiler exposure, millennial opinion insertion, and the perpetual ignorance of common sense. This narrator advises that the listener digest the following as entertainment. The showrunners behind it are neither six-figure filmmakers nor professional critics. They are casually critical. Hello and welcome to Casually Critical, the podcast show starring two friends who love to talk about storytelling in the world of entertainment. I'm your host, Daniel Carpenter. And I'm James Newton, your co-host. Today we will be talking about Glass, M. Night Shyamalan's latest film. Be warned, there will be discussion of spoilers, which includes the movies Unbreakable and Split as well. Right, and as always, stick around at the end for our feature Itch to Pitch and find out how you can get involved as a part of our podcast. Now let's talk about our movie for the day. So, Glass. How about it? Well, I can't sum it up for you in one word. That's what the soundtrack sounds like. If you don't like that, then you don't belong on this episode. You'd be a dead man or okay. woman. Our rendition was actually pretty bad. Full disclosure. Very Full credit goes out to Wes Dylan Thordson, who composed the music for this wonderful masterpiece. James, where do we begin? Let's begin with the average score on Metacritic, which is a 43 out of 100, Daniel. What okay. do you think about that? What do I think about it? Yeah. It's like having the Titanic being sunk by a measly iceberg. It's pitiful compared to what this movie was. So you're saying the sinking of the Titanic was pitiful? Because it did sink by a measly iceberg. That's what actually happened. And this movie did suffer a 43 on Metacritic, James. That's true. Talk about tragedy. Okay. All right. I should say the one thing about this movie, that's a lie. There's more than one thing. There's a lot to praise here. It's no shame. I'm a fan. Uh, we're both fans. But I think the people of this movie, there's just so much. James, there's so much about this movie that it does... Right. The score is amazing, and it driving, I think, is the best word to describe it. Uh, the actors are incredibly on point. We'll discuss that later, trust me. Oh, yeah. The cinematographer it does a great job with the camera movements. Yes. And M. Night Shyamalan, the director who did The Last Airbender, Lady <laughs> in the Water, people have scorned this man, praised this man. Do you think he's... On the rise again with this movie? I have no idea. I don't know. He's he's a hit or miss guy. Yeah. And I think everyone thought that, that Glass was a miss. Mm. Except for you and me. <laughs> we both much. really like it. Yes. And so um, if you're listening, I, I really hope that you have seen the movie because we are going to just uh, full on talk about the movie without regard to spoilers. If you haven't. I really recommend you pause this podcast, listen to the movie, and then come back and, and listen to it. Uh, it. Just incredible movie. You know what? I'm going to do it. Let's talk about James McAvoy. Oh, yeah. Because, okay, a little bit of a soapbox here. In my personal opinion, I think James McAvoy is probably Hollywood's, no, definitely Hollywood's number one most underrated male actor of all time. Okay. Yeah. A few years ago, it was DiCaprio. But he won his Oscar. He's out of the picture. McAvoy stands tall. And if you were listening to me and you were wondering, what in the entire world did James McAvoy do to deserve such a venerable title? Do me a favor. Look on the IMDb page and look at all of the roles he's played for this movie. Definitely crown jewel in his portfolio right, is glass. Mr. Tumnus from Narnia. So good. So good. I love whenever he makes sounds, whenever he's freezing and turning to stone, he goes, Ugh. I love that. That's the best. James. Yes. After we're done recording this, we need to have a talk. Okay. Anyway, I want you to look at his roles. Yes, roll with an S at IMDb. 
Patricia, Dennis, Hedwig, The Beast, Barry, Heinrich, Jade, Ian, Mary Reynolds, Norma, Jalen, Kate, BT, Kevin Wendell Crumb, Mr. Pritchard, Felita, Luke, Goddard, Samuel, and Polly. Those are over ten distinct, different personalities that he portrays in this film. And all of them are showcased here. They're all very different. What, you may ask, may be so good about James's performance? James McAvoy, you can just tell. I mean, even by him shifting his face, which personality he is currently portraying. And all while there are hardly any costume changes. There are some, but it's very minimal. His, he doesn't have any makeup on. He doesn't have he, the only aid he can possibly employ is the use of his body and of his face. That is skill. And if you want just a taste of my rage for the injustice this man has gone through, of not having any kind of recognition whatsoever, he has never, he has yet to win an Oscar. The only large USA award that James McAvoy has earned was a Globe and Gold. Uh, Globe and, wow, excuse me. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. He had a Golden Globe nomination in 2008 for his movie Atonement. Nothing for Split, and I'm afraid that nothing might be for this movie. Now, let's take a look at some of the best actor nominations of the year that Split was released for um, just best actors. We have Brian Cranston for Trumbo. We have Matt Damon for The Martian. We have Leonardo DiCaprio, of course, for The Revenant. That's Good what stuff. he won. Michael Fassbender for Steve Jobs. And Eddie Redmayne for The Danish Girl. Now, I haven't seen most of these. I've seen The Martian, and I've seen The Revenant. Now, this is where I have to hesitate. I, I don't want to consider all these actings to be bad, per se. These are professionals, and there's a reason they're professional. They've put in a lot of work to these characters, and... I think they've done well. I think all of these. Now, I haven't seen all these movies. I've seen The Revenant. I've seen The Martian, at least of this recording. You've seen more than me. Well, I The Revenant is it is really good, and I am glad that Leonardo DiCaprio won that Oscar. But the fact that James McAvoy, who plays over ten different personalities in Split, was not even nominated for that Oscar of Best Actor, it frustrates me. And while Matt Damon, I think, did a great job with The Martian... For me, it is hard to reconcile that with the phenomenally unique and almost idiosyncratic performance that McAvoy gives. And that's just one of the actors here in this terrific film. You know what else McAvoy could have been nominated for? What? Logan. Oh my gosh, how did he turn into Patrick Stewart so fast? That was just mind-boggling to me. Like the best makeup job I think I've ever seen in cinema. We're going to talk after this episode. Two talks now? Is that what's happening? Yes. Okay. We're going to have two talks. All right. One of them is going to be about the importance of research, <laughs> and the other is going to be about the importance of taste. Yes, sir. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, that that's just me doting on James McAvoy, one of many fantastic performances here. Uh, Bruce Willis also. Uh he does good in this movie, though I I feel he's kind of underused. Yeah, he's definitely you. overshadowed by the, the 20 personalities of <laughs> James McAvoy. It's not yeah, really fair. I kind of so. built that up. Yeah, yeah, but I also feel story-wise, too. Uh, the character of David Dunn, mm-hmm. slash the overseer, they refer to him as the overseer in the beginning right. of this movie. Right, right. Um, he's just not well employed in this movie. Yeah. Uh, they don't really utilize his character and i think the little i saw of him was done well it's just he's not really used for much other than a catalyst of the plot i feel like yeah he just kind of is lurking in the shadows which pun intended i guess he does that (laughs) as the overseer but i just i wish i had seen me some more david dunn but i think the characters of mr glass played by samuel l jackson and james mcavoy's character We'll call him the Beast, I guess. The Horde is what they're collectively known as. Right. Uh, James McAvoy is the Horde. Sam Jackson as Mr. Glass. I, I think they really take more of the spotlight here. Um, gosh. Uh, Ms- I enjoyed Anya Taylor, too. Yeah. Um, she did really well in Split, uh, and I think she brought... I, I don't know. I'm 
I think the micro expression game is pretty strong. Yeah. Um, specifically with James McAvoy, but Anya Taylor does a very good job with with micro expressions. There's a lot of storytelling involved in how she feels about the horde in her mm-hmm. micro expressions. Um, right. There's a lot of a lot of small things that that someone could notice if if studying her face, um, how she responds. Right. Showing that she, you know, is still attached to this this person, the Horde, um, right. because they initially, you know, freed her from, or empowered her to be free from her abusive foster, or not foster family, I guess it was her uncle, right? Yes, yeah, yeah it was her uncle. Yeah. Yeah, um, and I, I think we will be talking more about her character. She plays Casey mm-hmm. um, in both movies. Uh, we'll be talking about her a bit later. Anya Taylor-Joy, that's her employed. full name. I'm yes. sorry, I didn't say that earlier. Yeah, it's all good. Um yeah, she, to my knowledge, uh, she is an up-and-coming actress. She hasn't been in a lot of... She hasn't had an extensive career, but it's definitely one that is emerging. Um, and I think movies like these are certainly helping. This movie did not do terribly. Uh, the budget was at $20 million, which is a relatively low budget, for, especially for a film like this. Um, but its opening weekend, it got $40.3 million, which is double. And I do believe it got... 110 million worldwide. Yeah, 110 million worldwide. So <laughs> it's nice. I I haven't heard a lot of people talking about this movie. No, no uh, one talks about it. No. I've seen a few video essays online saying how bad it is. Right. And I just, uh, I can't agree with that. I suppose we should address the video essay elephant in the room, the ending. Yeah. I Because... I, I, I don't think I'm wrong in saying that's where the vast majority of the critiques towards this film have been. Yeah. That twist ending where you learn everything and lose everything. All the characters of the story are killed off and there's a secret organization revealed. We don't... Um, I could be wrong in this. I don't think we ever learn their name. could be like the... Oh, uh, what is it? Um, they have a three-leaf clover. Yeah, the thing clover society. Yeah, whatever. Maybe. That's pretty good, actually. Clover society. Yeah. Maybe Shyamalan will make a movie about them. Maybe. Start starring my favorite actress, Sarah Paulson. <laughs> yeah, you want to talk about Doctor Ellie Staple? <laughs> okay, so my biggest issue. I was okay with the ending. I think we both were. Yeah. But um. Sarah Paulson represents my uh, one very large critique of this film, which mm-hmm. is the pacing. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, a large portion of the second act of this movie is Dr. Ellie Staple, played by Sarah Paulson, walking around and talking to everybody. Right. And that would be okay if I, if I enjoyed her. Yeah. But I just didn't. It's a very risky gamble you play as a storyteller because if you are going to slow the story down, you have to create a world that helps encourage the story to stay there. And a large part of that is obviously, maybe even a central part of that, is keeping the audience willing to stay there. Mm -hmm. But you face a problem right away with these characters who are confined in their own ways, but they're very, they roam they're made if if we were going to compare this to like a, a zoo these are animals that are made for large territories the right. horde always moving always moving even if it isn't physically it's emotionally and mentally they're always switching personalities they're mm-hmm. always active david dunn is always active in crime fighting he's all over the place going to different buildings right. going on i believe him and his son called designated patrols designated walks mm-hmm. and then you have mr glass who even though he's the most physically confined of all of them being in a wheelchair he is still mentally active. Always thinking, always, always planning. Always ahead of the game, no matter what. Right. And so you have all these characters who are, in our own minds and in the culture's minds, heroes or villains. These are larger-than-life characters. Mm-hmm. When you not only take these active characters and make them inactive for a time, and on top of that, when you take these um, mythos of, of heroes and villains and just confine them into therapy, essentially, it becomes a very risky gambit to play i would have almost liked to see most of this movie not set in the um therapeutic mental place i think it was raven hill memorial yeah raven hill i would have liked it if perhaps they would be forced to take visits there somehow i don't know how you could incorporate that incorporate it narratively but if they would have just uh still done their superhero thing but the lies of the psychiatrist keep permeating in their minds right um quick side note um 
one video essay I watched actually made a good point. There's a lot of effective use of color in this film, mm. uh, a lot of thematic color symbolism. So Mr. Glass, for example, has purple as his color. Not only does he dress in it, but there's just um, whenever it's uh, there's the comic store that has villains on it. Right, it's the neon's purple. purple. Exactly. Nice. And David Dunn, the overseer, is green. He wears a green poncho, mm-hmm. and also heroes. The hero section is green. Mm. And then you have the Horde, whose key color is yellow. They dress a lot in this yellow, uh, not jumpsuit, kind of this prison gear almost. Yeah, I guess um, um, scrubs. Yeah, almost. scrubs would be the best way to describe it. Um, but there's a lot more the video essay went into on what these colors mean. Purple is royalty, larger than life. Right. Um, green is life which is what David Dunn fights for. Yellow is religion and spirituality. Which is which what the Horde is all about all in this movie. Them, I always. Mean, you don't really get any glimpses into the faith or belief aspects in Split at all, but right. that is what it's all about in Glass um, mm-hmm. regarding the Horde and whether everybody should have faith in the Beast or in Kevin Wendell Crumb, and there's a big right. fight going on, believing who should take care of everybody. Yeah, a lot of schism going on, this yeah. big schism. But to make my to wrap up my point, the fourth color used in this film, a mm-hmm. lesser known color, is actually Ellie Staples' uh, own color. She has a pink color. Mm-hmm. Not only does she dress in kind of these light pink, I think more pastel pink outfits. But there's one scene when they're all in this pink room, and she has all three of them lined up. Mm-hmm. And she's kind of mentally and psychologically trying to break them all down. Pink is her um, her color. And it's interesting because um, there's a scene when I think Casey is in the comic store, and she is reading this this comic about the Whisperer. And it's obviously a made-up comic. Mm, it's David Dunn's son is reading about it. Ah, uh, yes. Nathan? Is that his name? Joseph. Joseph Dunn. Thank you. Yes. Um, and so he's, yeah, he's reading through and there's this Whisperer comic. And um, one person hypothesized that Ellie Staple actually has an ability and her ability is to um, spread lies, to plant ideas in people's minds and help them take root. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if that is uh, entirely true. I, I think it would make the theme of her character a bit confusing yeah. if she was actually one of the heroes that her and the society helped destroy. But it makes an interesting point, I think, thematically, because each of these characters, while not all of them have powers, they all have themes that kind of correspond. And I will say, kind of going on what you just said, James, a large theme of this film is faith. And in, um, I want to say, I don't want to say the belief in oneself, but I don't know if there's a better way of wording it. Um, Yeah. um, Will. Yeah. Um, I guess not letting other people define you. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think believing in oneself is probably the best way yeah. to explain it. Now, I think there was something you told me, actually, after we had just seen this movie in theaters, something yeah. about uh, this one scene between Mr. Glass and the Horde. Yes. Um, no, not the Horde, Patricia, actually. Um, there's the scene where an Ellie, Dr. Staple, has... Um, she has really firmly planted lies in their minds, and um, Patricia is actually kind of losing control of the horde. They are kind of rebelling. Maybe the beast is not effective, um, stuff like that. Right. And Mr. Glass um, really helps inspire her, and I don't know if you want to describe that more. Yeah, yeah. So the quote is something along the lines of um, everything can be explained away in a scientific fashion but that doesn't make it any less extraordinary Mm -hmm. um and i don't i don't know if that's the exact quote but um Mm -hmm. to me that just i I think that's a really amazing thing to say um i think that everything in this world needs an explanation Mm -hmm. um especially with the fishbowl that every public figure lives in and and every um every personality in this world that we watch, everybody lives in the social media fishbowl. And so mm. everything that goes on in their lives has to have an explanation and a why. And we have to know, um, in America, we have to be certain of what we need to do and why we're doing what we're doing. And we have to have passions and goals and mm. everything has to have a reason and has to be explained. 
Yeah, it's it's a fine line <clears throat> to ride because rationale you don't want to just say don't embrace rational reasoning because you don't want people to be naive and you don't want someone to just believe themselves and for the sake of saying well I just am the way I am but you don't want to over rationalize things because if you fully embrace rationality as your sole reason for doing what you're doing it's hard then to see the special kind of almost mystical almost whimsical imaginative side of that if someone for example is a good uh, juggler right and they just love juggling you could easily chalk it up to well you did years of training your muscles are probably in such a way that makes you you know ideal for what you're doing but at the same time Maybe they're just really good at juggling. Maybe they just love, their passion is what helps drive them to, you know, do what they're doing. And perhaps, yeah, their muscles may be a certain way, but that doesn't necessarily mean that what they're doing is any less special. And a scientific explanation is not going to kill any small kid's reaction whenever they see this amazing juggling act. They're still going to go, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Right. Like, there's no scientific explanation that's going to shut that down. Like, that's always going to be the response to something truly amazing. Right. Yeah, and it doesn't change the fact that it is still impactful. It's an impressive performance. And I think, as humans, what this movie might be getting at is, why can't we do both? Why can't we, yeah, we can have rational reasoning, but still um, avoid that rationality protruding into our captivation right. by certain things. Yeah. And I think, as an artist, I mean, I might be biased here, but um, I think it speaks true to me of, yeah, you can explain things or try to explain things like left brain, right brain, whatever. But personality the, types, right? Whatever, and and those things are not. We're not discrediting those. I think certain, you know, personality typing um, and stuff like that. There is a usefulness for it, um, but there's just this imaginative, like I said, this captivation that art can bring to people. This. You could call it magical. Um, and you can't explain the art, but there are some things that are harder to explain. And this movie brings up the question, should it be explained? And even if some parts are explained, does that mean it's any less special? So I think that was just a very, um, at the very least, interesting theme yeah. that the movie brought about. So somehow we sort of trans translated from, here's some bad parts about the film into here's some really deep themes that we really love about the film yeah um so yeah i think that's one of the big things that we both really enjoyed about it um what are some things visually besides the color Mm. that you really liked about this film i remember you talking about the cinematography and the use of Mm. actual glass in this film and i thought that was a very clever observation yeah there's for a movie called glass there's a lot of thought that is played into this um not just the character of mr glass because he is um you could make a case for him being the main character even though he doesn't show up until a good portion of the way into the film i'd say 20 to 30 minutes in but this movie would be a lot more depressing if mr glass wasn't in it because he is the reason how these heroes are able to believe in themselves and, and, and grow and, and find the strength to kind of emerge. Um, but in regards to the visual element, there is a lot of use of glass in this movie as both a way of perhaps modifying perception. So you have, um, and I'm just thinking of a very random very specific example, but the scene when Mr. Glass goes into the surgery room where they're about to operate on him and sabotages the machine. Mm -hmm. He removes and looks at this device, this contraption that has multiple panes of glass in it, and he's looking at it. And if it would work, this machine would, we would assume, permanently uh, prevent him from accessing his potential, as the movie would probably describe it, and modify his perception of it. And what he does instead is he smashes it and then uses the shards to, well, cut a guy's throat and ultimately begin his escape. He takes a forced perception, destroys it, and then uses the remnants to destroy and escape. It's very um, morbidly poetic. 
But then there's a lot of other cases of your more typical um, scenes that you would find in a, you know, mental, uh, in Ravenhill, the Ravenhill Institution. Um, I believe there's some one-way mirrors used. There's, um, again, uses of glass to um, symbolize perhaps perception. Mm -hmm. Um, As we were saying earlier, how one views oneself or how people view oneself Glass is a huge part in that. I mean, mirrors help us look at ourselves, and glass helps us see other people through barriers. And I recall one shot um, of David Dunn whenever he's at his lowest. um, The peak of his doubt, he is sitting against the wall, and the reflection of the metal wall shows this very, very warped um, view of David Dunn and and how distorted um, his own perception has become is really exemplified in that shot. Yeah. Um, it's just so, so clever. It's amazing. There's uh, the cinematographer. I want to call him out here. Mike, oh, I'm going to butcher your last name here. Uh, Geolakis? Geolakis? I don't know. I'm not a linguist. Maybe it's Geolakis. Geolakis. We'll go with Geolakis. Mike, if you're listening to this, well done, man. Um, he is such a skilled cinematographer. There are so many... There are so many shots in this movie that are not what you'd expect. And the artistic and sometimes poetic significance of these shots can make Avengers Endgame look downright generic at times. And that's not an ugly-looking film. It's just, with this movie, it reeks of thought put into the shots. So much creativity. So much. And I think uh, in one interview, M. Night Shyamalan has even said he... He doesn't, not a lot of directors do this, but he actually storyboards his film shot by shot before he even begins filming it. Mm. Um, and so I think that amount of collaboration, <clears throat> working with Mike, the cinematographer, really made it shine. Um, talking about glass, there's several uses of this. There's a lot of POV shots, or at least points of view from people you wouldn't expect. In the final fight scene, when David is fighting the Horde outside, the Horde. Um, they slam each other against this van and you see these people freaking out as the horde tries to attack them and Mm -hmm. uh, flip over the car through glass, might I add. And then later on, when David Dunn is drowned in a puddle, you see his reflection. Hmm. It's very interesting that it's like glass. A lot of patterns here. A lot of... Hmm. A lot of uh, corresponding shots through glass. I also recall... Um, one shot um, with no sound whatsoever being shot through the window of Ravenhill Memorial as all of the members of, um, I guess, all of the people in relation to these superheroes are gathering in the middle of the courtyard and talking mm-hmm. um, with uh, Dr. Ellie Staple. Oh, yeah. Um, Let's talk about that for a moment, because I do believe you've procured for us some reviews from this movie. Yeah. And I do believe one of them addresses that. I was looking at it. While you're pulling it up, too, I just want to say about Mr. Glass himself, um, Samuel L. Jackson does such a great job at making Mr. Glass this... He's villainous. There's no doubt about it. And uh, we were talking earlier, there's this tendency a lot of modern movies have, especially to make the bad guy not the actual evil bad guy. Right. I think Ellie Staple is certainly an antagonist, but Mr. Glass is certainly villainous. Mm-hmm. Ellie Staple, up at least until the end, and even then indirectly, she doesn't have a body count. Mr. Glass has a body count. He's sure? committed acts oh of gosh. terrorism from the train bombing and Unbreakable to oh, yeah. slitting someone's throat in, in glass. Yeah. And yet he's... So downright likable. There's a scene when uh, the Horde turns into Hedwig, and Hedwig is expressing his doubts. And mm. I just want to say, I love Hedwig. Oh, yeah. He's a lovable guy. <laughs> uh, he's Great so character. funny. Dwig's my main man. But, <laughs> but it just the way Mr. Glass is able to empathize and really kind of reach Hedwig, that would be different from the way he would talk to someone like Patricia, right. really shows he still has a heart. It's a warped and distorted heart, but there's still a heart there. Right. The quote I remember is, you're Hedwig, right? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, so you're nine forever, right? And he's like, yeah. And Mr. Glass is like, that means that you get to see the world for the way it really is. Yeah. For your whole life. 
which I I don't know. Yeah, it's so he Love celebrates. That. Yeah, Hedwig, and he he understands that it's not just about saying, "All right, we're gonna escape. We're the bad guys now. What are we? Some kind of suicide squad?" <laughs> he 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 knows what to say. He knows that even though the horde is also very messed up and broken, it's a very messed up human. It's still a human. Right. And Hedwig is at least in the personality's mind this nine year old boy, and so he plays into that he's not like all right suck it up let's go you know save the world or destroy it he um he just i don't know he reaches uh hedwig the way you should a nine-year-old and that's just incredible to me Mm -hmm. so what do you have in regards to the review james um okay so one thing that i highlighted here from this review from max madam of total film okay uh talks about how, quote, Shyamalan clearly knows his comics and delights in having his characters point out the conventions, but it can make for a superhero movie that plays to the head more than the heart and works better as a conversation starter, Hmm. quote, what if superheroes are real Hmm. than as an actual cinematic experience. Gotcha. Um, And I want to push back against that because Hmm. I, I... had a lot of emotional experiences with this movie. Um, Not, not only was my head stimulated, but also my heart was as well. Um, There's so many moments where these characters are in these crises of faith and are doubting themselves and are doubting um, whatever forces granted them powers in the first place, doubting that, that those things still exist within them. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know. I don't know if, all the other people that viewed and reviewed um, this movie have not experienced doubt before, but I just really <laughs> empathize with these characters and um, the relationship between Casey um, and Kevin Wendell Crumb. That's a really, really great emotional relationship. And oh, yeah. I just, I don't think there's a lot of stuff that, that I can think about, but there's a lot of stuff that I feel in this movie too. Oh, absolutely. Uh, there's so many times when you just, you find yourself cheering for people you would expect to cheer for. <laughs> yeah. Mr. Glass, as soon as he starts getting moving, as soon as you realize, oh, he's not sedated. Oh, he never was. Ooh. Right. Ooh, I got excited. <laughs> I was like, all right, ooh, what is this? And I will say this, as as much as I am frustrated by the slowness of at times at Ravenhill, it, it does make for a more exciting and perhaps apprehensive climax to the yes. movie. Because when things do get moving, you get a more complete understanding of the emotional turmoil these heroes are in. Right. What they're struggling with, and now they're getting out of this. We're going to see how they do it. Mm-hmm. And it's it's so methodical how Mr. Glass does it. And um, the, the review you just spoke about, uh, let's see here. Talking a bit about um, it's better as a conversation starter. What if superheroes are real than a cinematic experience? If you wanted a conversation starter about what if superheroes are real, you're better off seeing the Dark Knight trilogy. Because Christopher Nolan has said from the get-go when he started work on that trilogy, he wanted to ask the question, what if you took a legendary comic book figure like Batman and made him real. If he was a real human being, mm-hmm. what would his world be like? And you've seen all of the movies that have received such high acclaim, critically and from audiences and fans, all of these movies emanate from that one question. What if the Joker was an actual human being? What if the Scarecrow was? What if Alfred was? And all of that. And I think, I, I know several people that have talked about The Dark Knight and said, this is not a story about Batman. We could make this any other hero, any other vigilante, and it would still work. That's how grounded it is. And I think that's something that this this movie succeeds in as well. Mm -hmm. I think um, these characters are iconic, Hmm. but they are relatable and they're grounded. Yeah. I will say one thing I I would disagree on is the fact that you could replace any of these characters with another hero. I do think for David Dunn, who is, I think, um, a little short in um, his significance in this story, I think you could replace him with any hero. But there are so many idiosyncratic nuances to the characters of the Horde and of Mr. Glass that make them unique. Mr. Glass is a man who has 
let's just say, fallen out of favor with the world hard. He has broken his legs. He's in a wheelchair. He's confined to it. He, The only place he has unlimited power, it seems, is his mind. And even then, there's only so much he can do. So he does the best with what he's been given. And that is when we're truly able to see the magnificence of his mind. The Horde... One thing I want to applaud M. Night Shyamalan for, because he also wrote as well as directed this movie, was the character arc for Dennis. Mm. Dennis has perhaps, if you were to cut down all of his scenes and just keep those, you would probably have about one or two minutes. And the arc he goes through in questioning the Horde, in um, having his doubts about the Beast in not wanting this life that he had for much of Split. There's such a beauty there. And this you have this whole redemptive arc for this character that played a huge part in Split. He barely shows up, but when he does, it's super effective. Mm-hmm. And I think he says something like, you know, I didn't want all the killings or whatever, like, you know, during the pink room scene when Ali Staples talking all of them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, every every character in the horde that gets more than a minute of time goes through this interesting arc whether it be mm-hmm. shifting from fear to confidence to to um like confidence to doubt and mm-hmm. back to confidence right um it's it's so interesting how all of those things can be perceived um and yeah. i've seen the movie you know three times now and i'm still picking up on small details right um this is not uh a marvel formula movie where you can watch one uh and you won't really miss any details this this movie Mm -hmm. um it you know sometimes to its own defeat has very hard to perceive details um there's a lot of things Shyamalan's just a very uh um what's the word Shyamalan's a very eccentric person and so those details are everywhere yeah that's a better word Mm -hmm. um he's a very eccentric person and so there's lots of fun small details for the more hardcore it is a lot like food in many ways i feel marvel has become kind of the fast food equivalent in the movie industry now i i want for all of you listening if you're expecting that i hate marvel just by what i just said there I let me uh, gladly tell you that you are wrong. I do like Misa Marvel. I am a Marvel fan. And he does love fast food. I do love fast food. Now, that is something we can talk about after we're done recording. That's because fair. I'll need I'll need help. After our other two conversations. <laughs> right, exactly. Well I'll just, you know, have a list. <laughs> but here's the thing, especially like McDonald's, and I'm playing in this case to the mainstream perspective of fast food, it tastes good. It does, but it's cheap, and it's ultimately kind of bad for you. Like, the ingredients it has, not the best. They're cheaply made, they're processed, and then they're churned out for a massive audience. And I feel that movies like the MCU are like that. Um, I'm not saying that they are that they don't work, or that the stories are all terrible. But when you compare them to stuff like this, this appears more like a homemade food item. You see, and you, well, in this metaphor, taste the love and the affection for each and every frame you there's so much thought that has gone into this and i'm not saying that this is a perfect movie no but when i when you ask me about glass and you ask me how i thought about it and its acting and everything and when i feel this strongly about the music and how the composer utilizes the themes of unbreakable and glass which he creates a new theme for Mr. Glass in this and split. Mm. And he uses this to create a score that pays homage and utilizes those themes as well as creates its own style. When I talk about the composer, uh, excuse me, the cinematographer and all of the thought and effort that has gone into almost every frame, the unique shots and the emotions that those evoke, the themes that those evoke. When I talk about all of the actors their contributions, and what makes their performances so good. When you take all of that together, it is hard to look at something like Marvel and say that is just as good. Mm -hmm. Because while Marvel might be good at balancing out multiple franchises, this movie is good at balancing out multiple characters and a story. And I think that's why it is so endearing. At least to us. 
And that brings us to the second question we should probably ask mm. is, how could this film be better? We already talked about some things that we don't like. We talked about some things that we right. love. How can we improve upon this as total amateurs mm-hmm. with our bachelor degrees? Right, as, as uh, moviegoers. Yeah. So uh, one of our reviews we have here is from Alyssa Wilkinson from Vox. Mm-hmm. Um, she touches on in her review a, a good point talking about the relationship between Casey and um, the Horde, Kevin Wendell Crumb. She says, quote, uh, Glass takes that idea to its natural end primarily, particularly, excuse me, in interactions between Casey, returning from Split, and Crumb's characters. I won't say what happens, but it feels pretty wrong-headed to suggest that abused women can probably save their broken male captors from themselves, if they'll just be kind to them. What? To be fair, this seems less of a message of the film than a result of Shyamalan not really thinking about its story. And this this review makes me feel interesting, because I, I partially disagree and I partially agree. I think, yeah. yes, I do think the relationship between Casey and the Horde was not done as well as it could have. I think if Shyamalan had spent more time working on the story, brought in other people to help evaluate and improve and polish up his story, I feel it could have been better. Um, I feel it does portray a wrong vibe, a wrong message, perhaps, of this this woman who suffered a lot of abuse. Forget the message it has about women. I just, realistically, I would not want to go back to someone that tormented me and my friends, even if it is his own different personalities. However, I will give Shyamalan this. I see where he was going with it. She wasn't, I don't believe, drawn to the Horde because of the abuse. And it wasn't because of that situation. It was because she saw the human behind all of these personalities. And I I think there's a lot more to it than just chalking up to, well, it's an abuse victim that just didn't learn her lesson. And in addition to that, Sheaf was empowered by the Horde. Mm-hmm. The Horde in Split taught her how to be brave and to stand up for herself, yeah. which gave her the strength to report all of the abuse that her uncle committed to her through her entire childhood. Right. Um, which is, I think, another reason why she's drawn to him. Um, you know, one of the first things she tells um, Hedwig, I believe, whenever they meet is, yeah, the cops finally got him, my uncle. They finally got him. Yeah. For all of those wrong things he did to me yeah it's almost like they are connected in that way because she was abused by her uncle kevin wendell crumb was abused by her mother mm. they relate to each other in in different in very different ways um, right than an abuser and an abusee would relate to each other right and so yeah this this critique of the film is a bit nuanced uh, i do think saying it's an abused woman um is and and her captor i think it's uh, simplifying it a little too much in regards to how this movie could improve otherwise, I feel that this movie has a lot of space that could be better serviced to add more interesting details, like maybe more action sequences. The action sequences, even though they are very few and far between, when they are done, are done insanely well. Um, the minimal use of CG there's a scene you see in the trailers, too, when the Horde is running across the lawn on all fours. From what I was told, that was an actual stunt person. Um, it could have been James McAvoy, but it was an actual person, and they used wires, but that person actually bounded across the field like that. That's so cool. It's those small things, and yeah. it just adds to this movie. It feels real. Though I am getting off topic... The whole sequence with Dr. Exposition, I mean, staple. (laughs) Um, M. Night Shyamalan loves his doctors. If you have seen Split, you will know what we're talking about. Because the doctor, therapist lady in that one... Psychiatrist. She drops a lot of exposition. Yep. I feel that M. Night Shyamalan's struggle is relying too much on said characters. Showing, not telling. The best M. Night Shyamalan work I have seen is when he doesn't tell us anything. Right. When we see the abusive relationship Casey had with her uncle and Split, very few words are said other than the minimal interactions they have, and we're able to learn a lot. When it's the horde just talking to themselves, even though it's meaningless chatter almost, there's significance in... It draws us into the character more, and it draws us in more personally. 
And there are so many good instances of showing and not telling within this movie. Um, mm-hmm. There's great scenes of um, David Dunn uh, pacing around, doubting himself. Mm-hmm. There are great scenes of just his son sitting in an empty room. Um, and you're sort of left to wonder, what is he feeling right now? Um, there are scenes of his mother. Oh, uh, that one scene. Yeah. That one scene at the beginning. I love that scene so much, and Amazing. I can't believe I haven't talked about it yet. But There's so much we haven't talked David about. David Dunn walks into his kitchen, and it, I think we're talking about the same scene here, where basically the scene tells you that his wife is dead. But Something's happened. Yeah. yeah, yeah, something's happened. Nobody knows, and it's just very well executed. It's, um, he walks into the kitchen. He's talking to his wife, and she's not actually there. And there was something about the way the first sort of the, the first shot sort of crawled along uh, oh, yeah. through the family pictures. I was like, "This is not good." All the lights are off in the house. He's coming home. Right. Where is his wife? Yeah. Oh, and that just killed me. That yeah. killed me. That subtle storytelling was so good. Yeah, but um, and I think it's a good example too of of lingering and long and slow pacing. Yes, it is not a universally bad thing. Yes, you can have a slower pace to build mood. I just watched Inglorious Bastards last night. Mm-hmm. That's a great example of long, drawn out scenes for the sake of insane amounts of tension. Oh yeah, like I would I would chalk it up to probably ten major scenes in this movie they're all so long and so drawn out and Mm -hmm. the whole time the audience is thinking please don't let this happen please don't let this happen and by the end it happens i remember now that you mention it yeah sitting in the theater and i remember when there were stay like when dr ellie staple was telling them all okay this is just in your minds this isn't real Mm -hmm. not only did i grow to hate her character i grew to hate Shyamalan, actually. I, I thought at first, what are you doing? You are... Because I thought that was a sincere, non-ironic direction he was heading. Yeah. I thought, oh, I was like, too. you are ruining your characters. They're all insane? Is that really what this is? Is right. that your twist, Shyamalan? Now, a lot of people have claimed, oh, this is ridiculous. We saw him doing superhero stuff in their previous movies. Yeah. I agree this movie has that working against it. However, for me at least, Dr. Staples' criticisms did spark some doubt because I thought the director was trying to sabotage the franchise thus far and so yes it was a relief when I saw the movie wasn't like that and I think the slowness helped us feel that despair but again this is tonally inconsistent from the other two movies in this trilogy Yeah. Um, Glass is not the most action-packed and it's really slow and even though Unbreakable, you could argue, was also slow, it was narratively about a man becoming this superhero. And so the action wasn't towards the end when he started fully embracing it. Narratively, Glass's slow pacing makes hardly any sense. But there are some moments that just... I I wish that he had really gone all out with these characters. If the breakout happened in like the middle or before the middle of the movie and it was about them being pursued by Dr. Stable and questioning who they were, I get you would have had to sacrifice some scenes, but at least it would have made for a more visually arresting and perhaps more um, on the tip of your seat kind of emotion to it. Mm. Um, Some scenes I... I, We haven't mentioned this one yet, because I thought this was what we were getting at with the the mother, and I thought the other mother scene, which was Kevin Wendell Crumb's mother. Oh, gosh, yeah. 30 seconds long, I believe, is all we see of her. But she comes up the stairs saying, Kevin Wendell Crumb? She's got this iron that's steaming hot. (laughs) So scary. 30 seconds. 30 seconds was all he needed to make me freak out. Two minutes was all he needed for me to see Dennis, that personality, have a complete arc. Why did we need two hours in Ravenhill? Why did we need 15 minutes of Dr. Ellie Staple saying, You're the man who survived that train crash. I swear she said that like 20 times in this movie. And I was like, no, you don't need to say that again. A very punchable character. <laughs> and, and this is no this is no discredit to the actress. Uh, no. She did a decent job, and this is not a hate on her. This is just her character. Yes. The way she was written. I think it could have been 
better. I think we're ready to do Itch to Pitch now. All right. Our so, first ever feature. Yeah. So Itch to Pitch is the feature where you send us your movie ideas and we give our own thoughts on them. They have to be one sentence long, no run-ons, and are selected at our discretion. Mm. You can send requests to our email, casual, casuallycriticalpodcast at gmail.com, or through direct message on our Instagram at casuallycriticalpodcast. Now, you can say... Uh, ITP at the beginning of your email or your DM mm-hmm. if you want to send an itch to pitch or QA for a Q&A question. Yeah. yeah, ways you can get involved with our podcast and ways you can be featured as these lucky few are about to. So here are some itch itches to pitch. Yes, let's let's look at the list. All right, so the first one we have here is um, from Anna from Indiana. That okay. rhymes. It's pretty good. Anna, Indiana. Uh, it's called Crash Course. So the one sentence is... Okay. Do you want to read it? Sure, yeah. I'm looking at this for the first time, for those of you who are curious. So uh, we'll just see what happens here. Crash Course. Nice alliteration. In the future... Nothing bad, interesting, or remotely out of the ordinary ever happens until one group of students, sick of monotony, decides to change that. So right off the bat, this is just my first impressions, just kind of blankly verbally processing. I like the title. I think it's catchy. There's a nice use of alliteration, like I said, two C's, crash course. Also rolls off the tongue well. I think in terms of marketability, uh, you have that down, Pat. Um, However, Anna... The pitch is not specific. Yeah. At all. What does it mean? What is the story? So what is the story, Danny? There are these kids. Nothing happens until one group of students hates that. Why didn't they hate it before? Why now? What's causing them to hate it? So here's what I'm thinking, Dan. Okay. I'm thinking this is a society maybe 20 years down the road. Okay. Where... Every perceivable problem has been solved. Everything's mm. great. Yeah, sure. Because um, that's definitely going to happen in the next 20 years, right? Mm, yes. Um, so uh, everything's been solved. Everything's been tidy. Uh, we're in a dystopian future. And these kids are just like, man, we never grew up in a place where we had to struggle or fight for anything. James, it's called The Giver. I've never heard of... what. Have, what is that the plot of The Giver? Basically. It's a place where they've solved all of the problems and, and then... Oh my gosh. It's... Yeah. I've never seen or read... Is this... We'll have the... Did they make a movie of it? Yeah. Okay. Don't watch it. Jeff Bridges is in it. I haven't seen it. I don't want to. Okay. Long story short Wait, is... You just said Jeff Bridges is in it. That makes me want to see it. <laughs> That'll be a fourth conversation we'll have after oh, okay. this podcast okay, is over. Okay, fair. I think we're a little off topic. I will say, Anna, uh, upon further reflection, your title, Crash Course, I don't know why. The image that's in my mind is just space Hmm. and asteroids. It just sounds very cosmic. I don't know. Crash Course. I still feel like I'm a dingus because I don't know what The Giver is. (laughs) For those of you in elementary school that have read The Giver, kudos to you. (laughs) For those of you who did not go to elementary school like me... (laughs) <laughs> Send me a letter and make me feel better about my education go, decisions. Who did not go to elementary school <laughs> and still had his college degree. Here I am. Okay. Thank you, Banner Elementary. I think we've critiqued that enough, or at least a lack of critique, because yes. I don't know how to tackle that one. Something Oh, something I want to say, first of all. Sure. Um, well, I guess this is like 35th of all. Yeah, but, sure. But um, all of these people that wrote these pitches here um, are friends of ours, mm-hmm. um, and... Yeah, I just wanted to say thanks to them for just yes. sending some messages on the last, yeah, no, last, the last possible, possible second. Right after we recorded our first episode, welcome to the show. If you haven't heard that, you might want to. It helps give you some context as to what we're trying to do here. But um, James sent out, um, uh, just contacted a lot of Facebook friends, especially people he knew from college and whatnot. And uh, for those of you sending these in, thank you so much. This helps us get some uh, some meat onto the podcast, so to speak. Yes. All right, James, you want to list off the next one and share some of your initial thoughts? Yeah, okay. Uh, So this one is uh, from Jacob from Wisconsin. Okay. It's titled Rock'em Sock'em Robots. Oh, The dark, gritty origin story starring Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger. 
Now, now, are we thinking this is going to be an animated, like, corporate brainwashed oh, no. kind of no. like toy company advertisement? There's so many questions. Or, or is this the route? Are we going like a Ready Player One route where it's like, mm. oh, nostalgia, but it's also hyper realistic? Like, yeah, we're punching each other in these big rock'em sock'em robots. I'm the blue one. I'm the red one. For me, um, the two words that give me are dark and gritty. And I, I think it's trying I think it's trying to be ironic, but realistically I if this does not embrace the meme, I don't think this will be a good movie. I agree. I mean, look, nothing screams meme more than Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone. Right. You have to embrace the meme, especially if you're basing this off that famous game, the physical game right. that you actually had buttons to press. You you need to make this campy and cartoony and over the top. And you have to watch out for, if you want to go the dark and gritty route, <laughs> you will risk scrutiny of a very severe decree. Yeah. If fans realize, oh, these people, or heaven forbid you, Jacob, if you did not <laughs> understand the irony that could be at play here. So go into it knowing that I think if you embrace the meme, I think you'll be fine. And I think... I think there's a, a you have an interesting idea with some promise. Um, please, if this ever becomes a thing, I would very much like to be invited to the premiere. Yes. I would see this in IMAX and in 3D. I yeah. love the casting choices as well. Um, I think those are the two best, most broad mm. action movie stars you could possibly select. So I think we have time for one more. Um, let's take a look at our final one. Okay. Also from Jacob from Wisconsin. Mm, you have a lot of great ideas. I really liked this one, Jacob. Okay, Go ahead so and read. Soulbound. That's all one word. A young girl born with the ability to see souls finds a boy with two. So I I am a fan of stories that have potential to be intricate and complex, but start out very simply. I think this is actually a very good example of an itch-to-pitch submission, something that has an interesting concept, portrayed in a way that is not only digestible, but, well, uh, easily one sentence. So, Soulbound. Yeah, I think there's a lot of potential for this one. I really like it. How about you, James? Um, I There's so much that's being hinted at here. Um there's a world where people have these abilities and mm -hmm. this young girl has the ability to see souls. This boy yeah. has two souls. So there's some sort of magic system around the manipulation of souls. Yeah, I think the, the world building has a lot of potential here, especially with uh, how does the world operate differently since people can see souls? And I, I'd be really interested to know how would a boy have two souls? I, the implication I have right off the bat, and I, I don't want to add more to just your one sentence, Jacob, but having, um, I, I would assume dark magic of some kind, yeah. maybe the antagonist or some kind of maybe error on his part. Maybe he goofed up the natural ecosystem of the world and something happened that was unnatural. And now that's why he is, well, dual wielding two, two souls. <laughs> one in each hand. Right, exactly. I always imagine souls as like these balloon-shaped, mm. white, glowy things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same I here. I don't know why. Well, there you go. There's your visual idea. Maybe yeah. this would be a great animation movie. Definitely. Just. Oh my gosh, yes. Yes. Please, can can we have Leica animate this movie stop motion since, Jacob, you are such a stop motion fan? I wouldn't go that far. I think stop motion is too professional and beautiful. I think a better thing, Jacob, that you could do is if you did this in 2D and then made it really good and put years of work into it. And then, later on, you have a live-action studio do a live-action CG version. And I say live-action in all quotes here. I mm. think that would be really good. I see. You could increase the longevity, make a lot of moolah. And I'm not saying money is any part in this, but I'm also saying it has every part in it. I see. I see you've been studying the 20-year uh, nostalgia bell curve. Yes. So, 20 years, Jacob, I think, make this movie, then wait 20 years, and then um, you have my blessing to go and reboot this and... Thank you, Papa Disney. <laughs> thank you. Also, Jacob, thank you so much for showing us uh, the what a spectrum of, of pitches we have here. We have this 
ironic meme pitch followed by something mm. that's actually quite interesting and profound. Very versatile, for okay, sure. Okay, actually, I take that back. The Rock'em Sock'em Robots is actually interesting and profound, too. Let's Just do in it. an interesting, in a different section of my brain. Nothing speaks poetic cinema like Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Punching I mean, they each did. Other. Oh, goodness, what was it? The Untouchables? No, 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 no. Un- uh... Oh, no. Uh, I regret that. Not Untouchables. Expendables. Expendables, thank you. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Not the Untouchables. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for the Itch to Pitch submissions. Uh, and now we would have normally transitioned into our fan Q&A. Unfortunately, we do not have any submissions right now. But, again, please uh, contact us by email, casuallycriticalpodcast at gmail.com or via Instagram, DM at casuallycriticalpodcast. And give us a follow there, please. Um, we will have notifications mm-hmm. letting you know whenever we have posted a new um, episode. Absolutely. Um, so whenever you're scrolling through your feed and you see us, then you'll know that we have a new episode up and you can check it out. Oh, yeah. We have some ideas in the works, some more concrete than others. We thought maybe in the future, if this gets enough following, if you guys like this stuff and give us feedback, which would also be useful, uh, we might do a Patreon of some kind. Uh, once we have a specific date... Um, day of the week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, whatever. Um, we'll let you guys know so you can consistently rely on, ah, yes, the next episode of Casually Critical is coming out. So we'll keep you guys in touch. Other than that, I'm Daniel, and this is James, and you've been listening to our podcast, Casually Critical. Have a great day, and don't forget to save the world. Break some glass. <laughs> Kick some glass.